this morning. I know I usually say that for announcements, but uh, it is a, a great joy of mine to be with my family. Uh, and I really covet and thank you for your prayers that you've been offering to the Lord on my behalf. Um, I know you didn't come to hear me update my life, right? We came to, to, uh, to hear about what, what God says in his word. Um, before I get to that, I want to read God's holy, perfect word uh, to you guys. This is God's, um, it's an amazing verse. So hear now God's word. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 31 through 33 says this. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. Lord, we hang on your words. We live by your words. It is the guide and rule and authority for our lives. And as we open up your word this morning, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would reign, that you would convict and challenge and encourage us this morning. And above all else, Lord, that you would receive all the glory. We thank you for this church. We pray for Pastor Paul as he is away, helping out another church right now. We ask, Lord, that you would speak through him mightily. And humbly, Lord, I ask that you would speak through me. And as always, Lord, I pray that if there's anything that I say that is of my own flesh, that it would go in one ear and out the other. But I pray, Lord, that you'd use me this morning, because I need you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. When I was dating Kelly, uh, we had been dating for about three months, really long time. Uh, <laughs> We ended up dating for about seven years, which is a long time uh, before we got married. But when I was dating her, I was very, totally changed. I'm totally different now. I used to be really arrogant. <laughs> and um, she was really shy. And I remember we had been dating. And it, it, when you're in college, you see each other every single day. And it's a, it's a, it's a huge blessing. And I would be like, why are you studying for your tests? You should be with me. And I remember this one time, she really hadn't really confessed any of her feelings towards me, truly. And I'd asked her, do you love me? Right? Because that's really a humble thing to ask. Right? <laughs> and I remember her telling me in tears that she loved me. And it was only after three months. Granted, we dated for seven. We're married, happily, I think. Um, <laughs> but I remember when she said that she loved me how that made me feel, how it kind of opened up to me a reality that I had never experienced before. And it, it, it moved me, it changed me. And I, and I think that that's what us in reform circles need to realize about God's love for us. Because we can, like the, the strength of the reformed church is that we are really good in the mind. But oftentimes, we're not so good in the heart. And when we need help for something, where do we go to? We go to YouTube. 
I mean, if I need help figuring out the plumbing in my house, I go to YouTube, right? Because the YouTube generally has experts on what I need to research. But where do we find out about the heart of God? We don't look to nature. We don't look to friends. We don't look to finances. We look to the Word of God. That is the priority of our lives every single day. And we neglect that. And it's a relationship that we have where we realize we are humble enough to know I can't afford to live my life without reading Scripture every single day and learning about the heart of God for me. And Lamentations is an incredible passage about that. Now let me switch gears here for a second. Where would you guys find a train? A train. Train station. Okay. Where would you find an airplane? Airport. Okay. Where would you find a car? There's a lot of different answers. All of your answers are true, but not completely true. Because in a sense, each answer given is the immediate one that you thought of. Maybe depending on where you have been that day or the presuppositions that you have that you've maybe experienced. We're, we're going to offer different answers to this, but they wouldn't be any more wrong or more right. These are what we call subjective answers. Or the scientific method, the answer to our results is inconclusive because we don't have enough information. Now we can ask another question, where would you find out about God? Where do we find out about Jesus Christ? See, generally, when one philosophically thinks of the person and work of Jesus Christ, their general disposition is such that they can only be found, Jesus can only be found in the New Testament. Ask anyone on the street, and unfortunately, so many in the church, and you will find the general answer to be the same. Jesus is in the New Testament. So when we look to the heart of Christ, we find these rich details of his actions, his person, his work, his life, his character, and his travels spread throughout the Gospels, even a little bit in Acts. And then the rest of the New Testament really talks about the application of the Gospel of Jesus Christ in churches through letters, addresses, and revelations for encouragement to the church. But in order to get a better understanding of Christ, we need to go to the Old Testament and study its rich explanations of the heart of God. You see, I can ask you, how would you define God's heart? There are many answers, but what's at the deep level of God's heart? See, I, I, I look at Carl, and I know I'm not going to pick on you, Carl, but uh, you're, no, I was going to say something funny, but I won't. I'll be nice. You're not like Lauren Leland used to be, but you love to dive, right? When most people go to the beach, they're going to stay on the surface of the water, and they're going to be content. They're going to be surfing. They're going to be boogie boarding. They're going to be playing the ocean, frolicking. But I love to go diving underneath. I want to, it's a whole new world underneath there. Plus, I, I, it's just silent and it's beautiful. And that's what I kind of want to do a little bit, go a little bit deeper into our understanding of God's heart for us. Because that should motivate us to love each other much better. It should be an encouragement on how we treat each other. See, what I want to demonstrate today is that what we see Jesus unveil His deepest heart in the New Testament, He's continuing on the natural trajectory of what God had already been revealing about Himself in the Old Testament. Jesus provides new sharpness of who God is, 
but not fundamentally new content. Now, the gospel themselves show that they understood the Old Testament to be preparing us for a humble Savior. According to Matthew 21.5, it says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the incarnate Son does not send our understanding of who God is spinning off in a brand new direction. I remember this, there was this popular song, and this shows my age a little bit. I love being able to say that this shows my age. I'm getting older. Great. Uh, by a band called DC Talk. You guys, you guys remember that band? You don't want to remember that band. They sang a popular song called God is Doing a New Thing. God is doing a new thing. <laughs> you guys remember that? It's going to be stuck in your heads. But the context of their song seemed to suggest that Jesus was the new thing, almost replacing the concept put forth in the Old Testament. Jesus, on the other hand of truth, despite DC talk, simply provides an, an unprecedented flesh and blood reality what God has already been, 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 been trying to convince his people of throughout the centuries. And as John Calvin put it, the Old Testament is the shadowy revelation of God, true but dim. The New Testament is the substance. And a good launching off point as we consider the heart of God in the Old Testament is Lamentations 3. Now a little bit about this book to get some context. No book in the Bible is so striking in joining the profound emotion and literacy or literary intricacy of Lamentations. It's crazy how it's set up. The author, Jeremiah, is pouring out his heart, lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. by the Babylonians and the horrors of starvation, of death, and hopelessness that ensued. Yet he pours out his heart through a series of five ornately structured poems reflecting this extreme literary care. You can see this simply by looking at the versification in your English Bible. Although the chapters and verse numbers were not added till much later, after Lamentations was written, these divisions in our modern Bibles do reflect, I think, the clear divisions of the book itself. You'll notice that of the five chapters, the first two each have 22 verses. And then the second two, the last two, have 22 verses apiece. And in the middle chapter, chapter 3, there's 66 verses. Each chapter is carefully, it's a very carefully constructed lament. Now with this overarching structure to this book in view, we understand what the literary high point to the letter is in verse 33. It's the exact middle of the book. And it captures the heart of the book. So Lamentations 3.33 is the book of Lamentations in a nutshell. What does it say? It grounds the surrounding assurances of God's eventual mercy and restoration with the following theology. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Other translations say, he does not afflict from his heart, or grieve the children of men. See, this is an implied premise with an explicit statement. What is implied and what is clearly stated. The implicit or implied premise is that God is indeed the one who afflicts. 
The explicit statement is that he does not do it from his heart. So the implied premise must be carefully embraced before moving on to the statement. When we speak of what God does or does not do from his heart, we are not limiting his sovereign rule more broadly. Indeed, to the degree that we believe God is sovereign in all of our affliction, to the degree that we are able to be comforted, that he does not afflict us from his heart. First, then, we have to remember the beauty of utter divine sovereignty over all things, good and bad. The stubbed toe, the poison ivy, the backstabbing friend, the chronic neck pain, the people-pleasing boss, the wayward child, the vomiting at 2 a.m., the unrelenting darkness of depression. Many of you know I have a fungal infection in my lungs. I'm not going to talk about me, but it's been difficult. Is God sovereign over all of these things? Absolutely. The Belgian Confession beautifully articulates God's governance of all things in its teaching of divine providence. Part of it reads this. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father who watches over us with fatherly care, sustaining all creatures under His Lordship, so that not one of the hairs of our heads for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of the Father. Throughout Lamentations, this unfiltered view of divine sovereignty is everywhere at play. I don't have notes for this, but glancing at chapter 3, for example, if we look at verse 2, or all of the verses through 16, we notice it begins with He as the author recounts all of the horrors that God himself brought upon Israel. Verse 2 says, He has driven and brought me into darkness. Verse 4, He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me. He has made me dwell in darkness. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy, and so on and so on. But at the theological bullseye, of the whole book, we are told that God does not bring such pain from his heart. My kids have a messy room. You do. I love you, though, most of the time. Um, I do not discipline my children as if that was the goal. I don't find glee or joy in disciplining my kids. Much They might disagree with it. I do not enjoy it. It is not what I want. I want to embrace them, love them, hang out with them, because I delight in loving them. Right? I'm just a shadow. Here in Lamentations, the Bible is taking us deeper into God himself. The one who rules and ordains all things brings affliction into our lives with a certain divine reluctance. He is not reluctant about the ultimate good that is going to be brought 
and through that pain, but that indeed is why he is doing it. But sometimes he draws back within himself, sending that affliction. The pain does not reflect his heart. In the same way, when I discipline my kids, like I said, for not cleaning their rooms, that doesn't reflect my heart. There's a purpose for that. See, God is not a platonic force in heaven pulling the levers and pulleys in a way that is detached from the real and uh, serious pain and anguish that we feel at His hand. We are His royal priesthood, His kids, adopted before the foundation of the world was set. Our security is in Him. And so when He sends these things upon us, there's got to be a deeper reason. That is not His heart to just inflict pain because he's, He doesn't care. See, God is indeed punishing Israel for their waywardness, and the Babylonians sweep through the city. He is sending what they deserve. But His deepest desire, His deepest heart, is merciful restoration. So there's a deep meaning behind what is happening to us. That meaning is is learning the glory of God in submission as this life is not about us. See, let me explain this a little bit more. Thomas Goodwin explains this, and this is a long quote, so bear with me. He says, My brethren, though God is just, yet His mercy may in some respect said to be more natural to Him than all acts of justice itself that God does show. I mean vindictive justice. In these acts of justice, there is a satisfaction to an attribute, and that he meets and is even with sinners. Yet there is a kind of violence done to himself in it. The Scriptures so expresses it. There is something in it that is contrary to him. Quote, I desire not the death of a sinner. That is, I, deny, I delight not simply in it for pleasure's sake. When he exercises acts of justice, it is for a higher end. It is not simply for the thing itself. There is always something in his heart against it. But when he comes to show mercy, to manifest that it is his nature and disposition, it is said that he does it with his whole heart. There is nothing at all in him that is against it. The act itself pleases him for itself. There is no reluctance in him. Therefore, in Lamentations 3.33, when he speaks of punishing, he says, He does not from his heart afflict nor grieve the children of men. But when it comes to speak of showing mercy, he says he does it, quote, with his whole heart and with his whole soul, as in the expression in Jeremiah 32.41. And therefore, acts of justice are called his strange and his uh, strange work and his strange act in Isaiah 28.21. But when he comes to show mercy... He rejoices over them to do them good with his whole heart and with his whole soul. So Goodwin brings in a few other texts here that I want to kind of capitalize on. Jeremiah 32, 41, where God says of his restoring work, yes, I will rejoice. Notice that word rejoice. I will rejoice over them to do them good. And I will assuredly plant them in this land. With all my heart and with all my soul. There is a major difference there. Nowhere in Scripture is wrath rejoiced over. Isaiah 28.21 where God's judging activity is called His awesome and unusual work. The New King James Version says, For the Lord will rise up 
as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. See, tying these texts to Lamentations 3.33, Goodwin is drawing out the Bible's revelation of what God's deepest heart is. That is what he delights to do, what is most natural to him. I recently watched Pride and Prejudice with Kira Knightley. I know, super awesome, gloriously exciting movie, but I love it. We'll move on. The protagonist in the story, Elizabeth Bennett, makes a series of decisions which, seemingly correct at the time, proved to be false under further introspection. It was her pride that prevented her from seeing certain things about her future husband. I don't know why, but it's phenomenal. Anyways, I say all these things as examples because we ourselves are often blinded at seeing the truth of God right before our eyes, and oftentimes it's our pride that prevents it. We see God move and act in our lives, and mistaking it for something other than what it is, we despise and reject the good discipline of God. We have such a hard time with trials and difficulties because we are entitled not just millennials. Mercy is natural or usual to God. Punishment is unnatural or unusual to God. Some of us view God's heart as brittle, easily offended. Some of us view His heart as cold, uneasily moved. And that's why we treat people like that. The Old Testament gives us a God whose heart defies these innate human expectations of who he is. We are akin to Elizabeth Bennett. We judge God based upon what we perceive, yet forgetting that we do not have all of the information and understanding. It's hard because it requires humility. We must tread cautiously here. All of God's attributes are non-negotiable. For God to cease to be, say, just, would ungod him just as much as if he were to cease to be loving. Theologians speak of God's simplicity, by which we mean that God is not the sum total of a number of attributes, like pieces of a pie making a whole pie. Rather, God is every attribute perfectly. God does not have parts. He is just. He is wrathful. He is good. And so on, each in endless perfection. Even when it comes to the matter of God's own heart, we see complexity in the opening passages of Scripture. If you look at Genesis, the first two major decisions God makes following creation are both said to be matters of His heart. Destroying all flesh except Noah in Genesis 6.6 and accepting Noah's sacrifice um, and determining never to flood the earth again in in Genesis 8.21. Apparently, God is also complex enough to make decisions both of judgment and mercy out of his heart. Yet at the same time, if we were to follow closely and yield fully to what Scripture's testimony is about God, we walk into the breathtaking claim that from another deeper angle, there are some things that pour out of God more naturally than others. Isn't that kind of significant? God is unswervingly just. But what is his disposition? Now, I'm going to use examples, or I've used examples and phrases from human experience, so I'm taking some liberties here, but what is he on the edge of his seat to do? 
What is he eager to do? My daughter Mia, I'm going to pick on her for a second because she's not here. She used to go to Wednesday class here, uh, which would be on Wednesdays. And um, during break that she would have amidst her day, she would love to sneak up through that door up to the stairs, which meets my office up there. And the door used to be unlocked. It's locked now, but it used to be unlocked. And she would sneak up with Kendall and Cammie Spear. And they would love to be like giggling the whole way up, like, hey, he's not going to hear us. They thought they were like ninjas, more, more like the Chris Farley ninjas. So they're in my, they go into my room one time, but I had visited Lisa downstairs. And I came, they were in my office, and I came up to my door, unbeknownst to me, and I open, I open my door, and they, ha, ah, you know, I nearly wet myself. <laughs> what came out of my mouth? I was like, praise Jesus, you know, I was not, that was not what came out of my heart, right, I, I, my, my natural disposition is grouchiness, what came out of me was my natural disposition, what is most natural to me at that point is to jump back and defend myself, so I took a swing, no, I didn't. If you catch me off guard, what will leap out of me is sin. If you catch God off guard as if we ever could, just want to put it in that perspective, what leaps out most freely is blessing, his impulse to do good, to show mercy. That is why good ones can say of God that all his attributes seem but to set out his love. In other words, that's how we can say that he loves us enough to send discipline our way, as in Hebrews 12. God is loving us when he's disciplining us. That's how James can write in the first chapter of James, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. That's why over and over again in the New Testament, and the Old Testament writers for that matter, that they can encourage the saints amidst their affliction. Another key Old Testament text is Hosea 11, where on the heels of Israel's spiritual fornication and abandoning of her divine lover, God recounts with stirring terms of affection how he felt towards Israel. Hosea 11.1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. So from the very beginning, or Hosea 11.3-4, I taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by their arms. But they did not know that I healed them. I drew them with gentle cords, with bands of love. And I was to them as those who take the yoke from their neck. I stooped and fed them. And despite this tender care, verse 7 in Hosea chapter 11 states that my people are bent on turning away from me. Or verse 2, that they are persistent in idolatry. What then is God's response? You see, we often look at our lives and go, God's response, his natural response is he's just going to punish me. I have failed too many times. Almost like we think God is eager to punish us. But in, by no means is that ever from his heart. He's doing that to draw us back to him.
What then is his response to us when we're wayward, when we make mistakes, when we fail, when we sin time and time again? Hosea 11, 8 through 9. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I set you like Zeboim? My heart churns within me. Listen to these words. My sympathy is stirred. I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man. The Holy One in your midst. And I will not come with terror. This should be remembered uniquely. I mean, because it uniquely tunnels into the heart of God in a way similar to Lamentations 3. In commenting on Hosea 11.8, Jonathan Edwards says something strikingly similar to what Goodwin says in Lamentations 3. Jonathan Edwards says, God has not pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that they may not have occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a God that delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. See, following the lead of Scripture, both Edwards and Goodwin call mercy what God most deeply delights in and judgment his strange work. Isn't that fascinating? Have you ever thought about God like that? It's brought so many things to mind about God for me and my presuppositions towards God and how I view my trials or discipline from God. And as we read and reflect on this teaching from great theologians of the past, such as Jonathan Edwards or Thomas Goodwin, we need to understand that they are not calling judgment God's strange work out of a deluded sense of the wrath and justice of God. Edwards is most famous for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's a terrifying depiction of a precarious state of the impenitent under the wrath of God, though not as terrifying as some of his other sermons. If you really want a terrifying sermon because you're bored, the justice of God and the damnation of sinners is a good one. This was the man who affirmed God, who delights in mercy, but judgment is his strange work. As for Goodwin, he stood up and spoke from the floor more often than any other divine at the creation of the Westminster Confession of Faith, the Standards in England in the 1640s. He stood up 357 times. And the Standards state that great, precise, hell-believing, wrath-affirming statement of faith that teaches that when those out of Christ die now, they are, quote, cast into hell, where they remain in torments and utter darkness Reserved to the judgment of the great day. That can be found in the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 32, part 1. It also speaks of the final judgment, where, quote, the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord in chapter 33, part 2. That was Goodwin's theology also. He had as influential hand as any in crafting it. As for Goodwin's own writing, he had no hesitation in talking about the wrath of God, about the most exquisite pains of hell, where God's wrath and his word, quote, to torment men forever. For he knows how to torture exquisitely those who persist in sin and do not repent. That's a little, it's a little heavy. Edwards, Goodwin theological river in which they stood, they were not mushy when it came 
to attributes of God. They affirmed and preached divine wrath and eternal hell. They saw these doctrines in the Bible like 2 Thessalonians 1, 5 through 12, just to name one example, is true. But because they knew their Bibles, inside and out, they followed it scrupulously. They discerned a teaching in Scripture where God talks about His heart most deeply. And this, perhaps, I think, is the secret to their time-tested influence. There's a kind of preaching that we see today where the Bible... Well, I'll be nice. They haven't tasted what naturally pours forth from God, which for all its precision ultimately deadens the hearers. If we just hear and fill ourselves up with a knowledge of theology... And we love these terms, but we do not focus on his heart and his heart for us. And that does not change us to love other people. Our hearts are being deadened. Not so the Puritans or the great preachers of the Great Awakening. They knew that when God designs to lavish goodness on his people, he does it with a certain naturalness, reflective of the depths of who he is. For God to be merciful is for God to be God. Now, I don't have this up here, but listen to Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is, like, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham, as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. See, left to our own natural inclinations or intuitions about God, we're going to judge him based upon our circumstances and think that his wrath or his judgment is his natural work. You know, Pastor Paul has been talking about how oftentimes our eschatology is influenced by the newspaper. I would say oftentimes our theology is influenced by our trials. It's the same Bad thing. Our theology has to be influenced by the Word of God. Rewiring our vision of God as we study Scripture, we see, helped by some great preachers of old, that judgment is His strange work and mercy is His natural or usual work. He does not afflict and grieve the children of men. Or he does afflict and grieve the children of men, but not from his heart. His deepest heart is one of mercy. And nothing can be clearer than his sending of his own son to die a gruesome death that we all deserve. Giving us faith in that work before the foundation of the world was set, not because of anything that we've done, so that we might have newness of life and be reconciled to this awesome, terrible, yet loving God. So my challenge to Branch, who find themselves in a marathon of pain, 
Do not look to your pain as if that is somehow the end. Trials are the process in which God shows his heart and his great love and mercy. For he does not delight in our sufferings, but has purposed it for his glory. And that is why we exist. And his glory was and is revealed in Jesus Christ. Christ, his entire work to reconcile and redeem us, is his deepest heart. Did he delight in the death of his son? It was purposed to show what he truly delights in, which is the salvation of his true bride. This doesn't give us license to sin. Like a light in a pitch black room, it opens up to us this new way of thinking. We must let this sink down deep in our hearts and change us to be more loving ourselves. Because we have been loved so lavishly. God, help us to have the natural bent of our lives be loving. Jesus shows the way. Lamentations reveals God's heart. How can we be the same? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that we would simply reflect upon your glory that you revealed in the cross in sending your Son to die for us. The name above all names. The name in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. We are not. Our wills are submissive to your will. Lord, in the midst of pain and trials and struggle, help us to see your love. It is so counterintuitive. But God, you are not man. Help us to stop viewing you like that. You are our king. You are a prophet. You are a priest. You've gone before us. And I pray, Lord, that as we <coughs> worship now, I pray that you would be honored, that you would sink these truths deep in our hearts, and that we would live for you, Lord. I pray that our great work today would be to trust you more. Trust you at your word. Not to try harder. Not to rid ourselves of sin. But to get lost in your heart. To trust you more, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.